Listening to the Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. And on today's episode, I am absolutely thrilled. Well, I know he's heard this a million times, but he is my favorite rock drummer of all time. I am not making that up. So it's an honor to have him on the show. He has a new book out called Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. It's selling like hotcakes. Go out and get it right now. I'm speaking of, of course, Mr. Liberty DeVito. Liberty, welcome to the Rick Z Show. Well, thank you, Rick. And if I heard that a million times, I have now heard it a million and one times. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad that you did. I'm the only one that truly, desperately means it. I'm sure they all think they do, but I mean it the most. Uh, You know, I used to think my mother meant that, but, um, you know... You could be driving me too, right? I can't speak for your mom, but I, I, I have to say, in my case, absolutely true. Been listening to you probably since The Stranger, and that, that dates me as well. So. Oh, it does. It does. You know, a lot of uh, these young guys <laughs> that are on the radio, when they say, yeah, my first album I bought was Innocent Man. It was like, whoa, how old are you, 12? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Liberty, the very first time I remember seeing you play, and I don't mean live, I've seen you play live many times, but the very first time I ever even caught sight of you was on video cassette. It was live on Long Island. Do you remember that show? Uh, I certainly do. N- uh, New Year's <laughs> Eve, 1982 or something like that? Something like that. Yeah, it was um, the Nylon Curtain Tour. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Great album. That was a great, energetic show. And the thing that struck me, being the very first time I, I ever laid eyes on you, I said, that guy is hitting his drums harder than anyone I've ever seen. The cymbals are going sideways. I thought they were going to go flying off into space. And I thought, this guy is a great rock drummer. This guy's got so much energy. Where does that come from? Are you imagining like an ex-boss's head? Well, is, is it well, joy? Well, here's the deal. Uh, you know, if you got close to my drum set, you would see that on my snare drum, I have my first ex-wife. On the tom-tom, <laughs> my second ex-wife, a picture. And then on the floor tom, there's a picture of Uncle Sam. So, yeah, I get to really, like, cream the drums really hard because, uh, you know, I'm looking at these pictures of people that I really don't care for anymore. But, um, no, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it sounds like a great formula. <laughs> but is this adrenaline, really, or is it joy? Is it anger? What, what motivates you to hit the drums so hard? Well, not anger. Anger, I can't bring anger... If I have anger, like I say this in the book, if I if I have a a, a a bad night on the drum set, I can come home and tell my wife all about it and say, oh, it was a terrible night, the band was terrible, and, and it was just the weather was bad, and blah, blah, blah. I can just tell her everything about the gig. But if I have a fight with my wife, before I walk up those steps, the drums demand me to leave it down below because I can't be thinking about something else like that when I'm totally concentrated and totally focused on what I'm doing. Sometimes I, I get so focused that there's a wing nut that holds the symbol on, and I'll, I'll just stare at that wing nut, and I find myself like I'm in a daze of this energy. You know, yeah, yeah and I've been, I've been called a, a, a musical athlete sometimes, because I do. I get, I get this runner's high when, when uh, I'm playing. As you get older and our muscles and bones and everything start to change, are there repercussions 
from playing that way? Well, I try not to get older, first of all. <laughs> Even though my birthday is Saturday. Oh, happy birthday. Uh, thank, you, thank you. Well, yes, there is. Uh, I, I have to wear earring aids because I blew my hearing out. Uh, you know, um, I, I can barely hear the TV anymore when it's on full. Um, I, do, I did get a uh, right knee replacement, a total knee replacement on my right knee because it's pounding that bass drum so hard. Yeah. And I, I did have arthritis in my arms, but I, you know what? I gave up dairy, and it went away, amazing as that may seem. No matter how hard you hit those drums, though, Liberty, it was always very lyrical. Even on a ballad like Summer Highland Falls, for example, your playing has words and phrases in it. I mean, it's always very musical. That's another thing that impressed me is, you know, you hit those drums hard, but you still bring out all the subtleties in the music, which leads me to the next question. Are you a songwriter's drummer? I am definitely a songwriter's drummer. I've been called that many times. When we went into the studio with Billy, the other guys would get charts, you know, chord charts and, you know, lead charts and stuff like that. I would get Billy's lyrics because I want to know what the song is about because that will dictate what I'm going to play. And as I'm singing along, I'll realize that, you know, this this space is to fill in between the verses or, you know, doing a, a fill to take it into a chorus or something. So that, that yeah, I, I play to the song. Does a great instrumentalist need a great song for him or her to kind of dig their teeth into, get, have a little bit of meat to work with? Well, yeah, a great song really uh, makes a big difference if you have a great song. If you have a, a bad song, eh, it's like you, you have to put your head in, in the mood to try to make this song better if it's bad. And that's, that's the approach that I go to. You know, I'll read the lyrics. I, I read some guy's lyrics one day, and it was, it was really about this, this uh, uh, passing of something, and it was like uh, you, uh, angel, the angels wanted you, and that's why they took you. And, and, I, and I played the song like, wow, this is really deep. And then I asked the guy, who's the person? Who did, who did the angels take? And he said, it was my cat. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, cats are people too, Liberty. Yeah, they are people. I, I know they are. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to congratulate you on the release of your new book. I hear it's doing very well. It's very difficult to write a book. Anyone that's done it will tell you it's tedious. It's organization hell. It is uh, time-consuming. What were your experiences writing it? Did you enjoy writing it? Was it drudgery? What was it like? Well, I learned one thing about writing. When somebody says, I'd like to help you do this, say, yeah, okay, come on, you can help. Uh, because, <laughs> yeah, it is, it is tedious. I did write it all myself, but I, I had um, the guys from uh, Hudson Music, uh, the editor, uh, Joe Bergamini, he helped me put it together. And um, also um, Simon Mills, friend of mine, he also helped me put it. He was the first one to see it when I had it all dismembered everywhere. You know, I just sent him uh, chapters uh, randomly, and he kind of put it in order. So um, I had a little help there, but I did write every word to it. Do you wish you had included certain things that aren't in there? And by the same token, do you wish that there are things you could take out? When I originally wrote the book, I was angry because me and Billy had parted. I just recently got divorced again for the second time, and uh, I hated my ex-wife. And I, there was a lot of like mean things in there. Hopefully, that with the older we get, 
we kind of mellow out. And with this book, I wanted to see things from like Billy Joel's point of view. I wanted to stand in his shoes and see why he did the things that he did. And when I did that, I realized the guy's name is on the marquee. He's got to write a new album of 14 songs, which four of them have to be top 40 hits. He plays piano. He sings lead. And I'm just a drummer in the band playing the drums, and I'm getting mad at him because I want to go out on tour in April, and, and I want to go out in April, and he wants to go out in May. You know, it's like he's, he's under a lot of pressure. So I looked at it that way and uh, saw it in a whole different light. I understand that, but shouldn't there be some kind of allegiance to the guys that helped make your sound to kind of get their backs and say, oh, okay, if you want to go out in April, maybe I'll make a little compromise because you guys are lugging around your equipment and you're doing this and you're doing that and you're out on the road for months at a time. You, you guys are part of this process as well. Yes, we, we are. And, and where that came in play was in the studio when he would come into a, into a room like uh, with Only the Good Die Young. When, when he wanted it to be a reggae song, and I said, that sucks. But, you know, you, you haven't been to Jamaica only on the, the Long Island Railroad where the train stops in Jamaica New York. Um, so, yeah, we were able to do that there in, in the studio. We really took part of putting that whole thing together where he was responsible for everything else. You know, that reminds me of just the way you are. From what I understand, when you first heard the song, you weren't crazy about playing on it. I think you said, I'm no cocktail drummer. I can't play this. Something to that effect. Uh, is that true, by the way? And if so, have you warmed up to the huge hit that it, it became? Well, we didn't like the song when we, we listened back to it after we recorded it. Uh, because we, wanted, we were a rock band, you know. We, we were playing, you know, uh, the heavier stuff. Things from the kind of restaurant, that rock pot in the middle. That, that's really us. You know, moving out was more of a heavy song. And then there was this Just the Way You Are that was like, you know. Uh, and um, it wasn't until a couple of ladies came in and said, if you put that on your album, that's going to be, uh, you're going to get a lot of a lot of girls with that song. <laughs> and it, it, it immediately went right on, on the record. <laughs> uh, very strong and influence, it, yes. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about Billy Joel a little bit more in a while, but I want to go back before all the Billy Joel, before really anything, back to when you were 18 years old and you were drumming for Mitch Ryder. Yes, how yes. Did, at that age, how did you get that gig? Well, I, I was actually at 17 years old. I had met the Vanilla Fudge. And um, I started to jam, do jam sessions with Vinnie Martell, the guitar player. So when Mitch had split from the Detroit Wheels, the Detroit Wheels came to New York looking for a new drummer because Johnny B was going to leave. They went to this place where we used to jam, and they asked the people in the front office, do you know anybody, that, any good drummers? And they said, well, there's this kid in the back that plays with um, with Vinny, and uh, he sounds pretty good. So I got first got the gig with the Detroit Wheels. Then uh, a couple months later, I'm, I'm 18 years old, just out of high school, and I get a call from Mitch's people because his drummer got sick. His drummer was Johnny Siomis who eventually went on to do Frampton Comes Alive. And uh, Johnny got sick. They called me up uh, on a recommendation from the guy who was the singer in uh, the Detroit Wheels. And um, they said, we need a drummer. Our drummer's sick. And I said, when do you need me? And they said, tonight. And I said, oh, can I come tomorrow? My dad has to drive me into the city. I don't have a driver's license yet. <laughs> you know, so 
And then Mitch became my calling card. Um, I would uh, audition for like Richie Super and even with Billy. Uh, they would say, well, who have you played with? And I'd say, well, I was in a band called The New Rock Workshop. You remember me from that. I played with uh, um, uh, this guy and that guy. And, and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd say, oh, well, I went on the road for six weeks with Mitch Ryder. And they'd be like, wait, you played with Mitch Ryder? And then it was like I was in, you know. So Mitch became that calling card for me. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it must have been a pretty heady experience at that age to be out on the road with such a big name. Oh, yeah, it was it was great. And to be to be a young kid like that, 18 years old, and be with like a major Detroit rocker. I mean, you know, you didn't rock much harder than Mitch. That's right. You know, so I really learned a lot from him and his band. It was, it was fantastic. Let's jump to the very first Billy Joel album that you're on. That would be Turnstiles, one of my favorites. Yeah. It's such a great album, so many great songs on it. You're obviously aware of the Gershio version of it. It has uh, Nigel Olsen on drums. Have you heard that version? And if so, is it ever going to be released? I mean, that sounds fascinating. Nigel Nigel Olsen, by the way, for the listener, is Elton John's drummer. And I know, Liberty, you, you've probably gotten very close with him on your face-to-face yeah, tour. Yeah, well, we, we were on that yeah, tour together, and uh, yeah, Nigel's a great guy. It was Nigel and Dee Murray, the bass player, who has since passed away. Elton had um, uh, fired them for some reason, so they got to... Jim Gersio brought in uh, those two to play with Billy. You know, they say, you're the piano player. You know, might as well get these guys. They play with a piano player. But it didn't work out. Billy didn't like the way they played. Knew that they, they Billy wanted uh, the same guys in the studio that would go on the road with him, and he knew that they wouldn't go on the road with him. They'd eventually get back with with Elton. And I did hear it. Uh, I heard it probably an hour before he threw the whole entire master tape into the trash. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, literally, or is there a copy of this music somewhere? I mean, no, I, I don't think there's a copy anywhere. I mean, you know how valuable that would be today? Yeah, I never... Uh, but I do remember James, the song James that's on Turnstiles. Yes. That one, I was impressed by that one because Nigel and Dee, they sang great. You know, and they did the backgrounds with Billy. And it, it was really... That one was really good. The other ones are okay, you know. I was just picturing the song I, Daniel. I was thinking if they can play on Daniel, they can play on James, you know? Right, right. Well, James was good, but, um, you know... Billy wasn't satisfied. It wasn't what he wanted. And uh, history tells uh, the truth. It was a good call by Billy. Absolutely. Something else interesting about Turnstiles, your guild guitar, your acoustic guitar, yeah. appears how come? Because the budget was so tight. You know, they, Columbia Records was set, um, um, spending money in the studio when Gersio and them, those guys were recording. So by the time we got out to Long Island, and Billy was going to produce it. It was something that Columbia didn't want done. So they, the budget was really tight. And when we started to do Anger and Man, and Billy wanted an acoustic guitar in there, uh, nobody had one. <laughs> so I, I said, well, I have one at home. And I brought it in, you know, and uh, uh, James Smith played the acoustic guitar in that one. And uh, yeah, I still have that guitar. Do you play it much? Do you play much acoustic guitar in general? I do. I fool around with it. I monkey around with acoustic guitar. You yeah. know, like... I got a great story that's not in the book. When I played with Paul McCartney, he, in between songs, we, we kind of like, we did two songs. In between the two songs, he would play piano and he'd do some Little Richard, little uh, uh, Chuck Berry, little stuff like that we were playing, you know. Then I got up from the drums, uh, we got something to eat, and then when he came back in, he went and sat on the drums. 
And he started playing. The rest of the band joined in with him. And he kept looking over to me, like saying, "Like I'm pretty cool, ain't I? You know, this is pretty cool. I can play the drums, right? You know, he's looking at me like that." <laughs> so he gets up off the drum set and he starts walking towards me. And there's an acoustic guitar leaning on the wall right next to me. And I pick it up and I can play Blackbird. And I just did the first bong, ding, 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 and he stopped and went, "Oh my God, you can play that!" <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love that story. I love that story. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, all this talk of turnstiles has made me want to play my favorite song off it. It's also one of my all-time favorite Liberty DeVito drum performances. I'm speaking of Angry Young Man. Do you mind if we listen to that? Oh, go right ahead. The great Billy Joel, the great Liberty DeVito. This is Angry Young Man from Turnstiles. Hit it. <laughs> Always a place for the angry young man with his fist in the 
never been able to learn from mistakes So we can understand why his heart always breaks And his honor is pure and his courage is well And he's fair and he's true and he's boring as hell And he'll go to the grave as an angry old tight band i mean every time i've seen you guys play and i've seen you maybe eight or nine times play live i've seen you at the garden i've seen you all over the place i just marvel at how tight that band is and not just musically but you can you can tell that there's this real camaraderie on stage one of the greatest rhythm sections in rock and roll as far as i'm concerned were you and Doug Stegmeier, and sadly he took his own life and it's just incomprehensible to me that Doug is gone and not part of that outfit anymore. Can you tell me a little bit about your memories about Doug and how this affected you? You know, um, Doug Doug was great. Doug got us all in the band. I mean, he was the first one that was chosen by Billy to do the Street Life Serenade Tour because, you know, he grew up uh, with uh, Billy's tour manager back then and now sound man, Brian Ruggles. And Brian got Doug into Billy's band when it was a different band on the tour for uh, Street Life Serenade. And on that tour is when Billy said, I want to go back to New York and I want to get another band that plays in the studio with me and that goes on the road. The same band goes on the road and I want a New York-style drummer. And then that's how I got in. And then uh, from there, we brought in Russell Javers and Howie Emerson and then Richie Kanata because Doug's brother had just done a session you know, he was an engineer, a recording engineer, and he'd just done a session with this guy that played saxophone that was really good. So um, through Doug, we all became the Billy Joel Band. And it was really sad when we got inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame that it was just me, Ross, Richie, and, and Doug's mother was there, you know, thankfully. But, uh, yeah, every time I got another gig and I would do something, 
and there was a bass player there, I always thought to myself, Doug could have been doing this with me. Doug could have been doing this with me. It was a, it was a great loss. I mean, we were, we were really close friends. Uh, it's really a shame. It's very sad what happened. Uh, you know, the sound of Billy Joel has been imprinted on my brain, and Doug is a big part of that sound, as you are, and all those guys. Uh, as I understand it, Doug's family blamed the band to some degree after he passed. You, the other guys, presumably Billy Joel as well. Why did that happen? Yeah. Well, I guess I figured, uh, you know, Doug, Doug uh, had left the band. You know, Billy, um, Billy changes all the time. Uh, you can tell from album to album he changes his sound. And sometimes he likes to change music- musicians. So when he got uh, let Doug go, uh, the, it was, Doug was very bitter, and everybody around Doug was very bitter that Billy did that. So they thought that Doug took his life because he couldn't deal with the fact that he wasn't Billy Joel's bass player anymore. You know, uh, it, what Doug did, Doug did. You know, the, the, you can't say anything about that. We could have done a little more for Doug. I, I would say, yes, we could have. You know, um, so we really should have should have supported him more when, when we felt that. But nobody knew that he was going to do something like that. It was insane, you know. Yeah, you can never predict it. You always hear uh, after something like this happens, even close friends often say, we had no idea that this was coming. Right. When we play with the Lords of 52nd Street now, myself, Richie, and Russell, uh, Doug, in his will, had left me one of his bass guitars, the one he used on the bridge uh, uh, tour. (laughs) Yeah, and um, Malcolm Gold, who plays bass in the Lords, he uses that bass when we play. You know, just so we have a, something of Doug's on stage with us. Well, Doug Stegmaier was truly uh, an original and a great musician, and he will be sorely missed. Yes, he will. Liberty, I saw this great documentary, Hired Gun. You're in it. Steve Lukather is in it from Toto. Steve Lukather brought up a really interesting predicament. A lot of people that work with big-name artists, like, say, Michael Jackson, they write parts of the song by coming up with riffs and things, that famous Beat It riff, that's Steve Lukather, he wrote that, but he doesn't get any credit for it. Where's that fine line between a musical collaboration and actually co-writing a song? There's a fine line there, isn't there? You know, in court, they say uh, the songwriter wrote the chords and the melody. That's it, you know. Like, Billy could sit down and block out chords and sing words to a song, in a melody, and that's the song. Everything else is added. And when you go into the studio, you're up for hire, musician for hire. That's what you are. And they expect you to be able to do those things. Like uh, Billy uh, and Phil, they expected me to make up drum parts. Fortunately for us, Billy was giving us a little taste. The more the album sold, the more uh, money that we would receive. So that's why he wanted us to go on the road, because he knew if we recorded the records, we were going to play the hell out of the songs. You know, and and really move the record. A great example, though, of what I'm talking about is Bob Berryhill. Bob Berryhill was the guitarist, as you probably know, for the Safaris, and he wrote Wipeout. But does the drummer get any royalties? Because that every drummer in the world knows that pattern. That's what that's what the song is mostly. Other other than just like a kind of a three chord blues progression, it's all about the drums. But it's Bob Berryhill that gets paid, right? Yeah, because he wrote the da 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 da. That's that's the melody. Yeah, nobody drummer, cares about that. <laughs> right, but the drums, we, we have no melody, you know? 
So there's nothing to write down on paper. You know, uh, I, I think it's almost impossible for a drummer to, to copyright his part. But I think if, if they would have really fought from the beginning with Wipeout, he may have been able to uh, claim part of the royalties. But I, I don't think so. Also in Gun for Hire, during your segment, you mentioned a phone call you made to Billy Joel. You needed some money. I think you were getting divorced or something like that, you said, and, and you had asked for a loan, and he said, you, you shouldn't have asked me that. And that kind of right. began a downhill slide in, in your personal relationship with Billy. But you don't mention it in the book. How come? Um, you know what? I probably forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's as simple as that. You know, uh, yeah. You know, you know, the book... When I first started writing it, it had a lot of that kind of stuff in it. But after a while, it was like, you know, I, I was getting divorced back then, and I needed the money. And now, the position that I'm in now, I'm remarried. I have another little girl. Uh, my other daughters accept the reasons why me and their moms broke up. And um, they know who I am, and I know who they are. And, and so it was like, why do I need to write this down? Uh, it, it, it's past stuff. I'm happier now than I was at that time when I was writing all that stuff, you know, I didn't want dirt, dirt, dirt in it, you know? Yeah. So when I talk about like I was in a room and the, the trombone player, we were sharing rooms and he walked in the room and he saw me with the girl. I don't have to tell you what was going on. You know, right? Yeah. You read between the lines. You deduce it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back to 76. After that period of time, it was all just huge smashes. You had The Stranger, and then it came 52nd Street, Glass Houses, Songs in the Attic, Nylon Curtain. It's just one amazing album after another. Obviously, as the band got better and Billy's songs got bigger and the, the whole thing just blew up, there was probably all kinds of hangers-on and all sorts of stuff going on behind the scenes. How do you tell the difference between a true fan and a sycophant? Because even true fans are very obsessive about the music. How can you tell the difference between them? Well, it's very difficult. And in the book, I address that in the, the chapter called Groupies. Because I did have some friends that, you know, they were really close friends. And, and you know, we used to hang out all the time and everything like that. And I would bring them to a rehearsal when we were rehearsing for a tour. And they turned into, like, little girls. You know, it was it was embarrassing. You know, snapping pictures all the time and... Uh, you know, just this crazy stuff that it was like, this is weird. And I did have one guy try to put my skin on. He wanted to be me when he met Billy. That's creepy. Yeah, it was very creepy. Very creepy. Whatever happened to that guy? Well, I don't see him anymore. That's for sure. Yeah. I'm off. <laughs> that is the great Liberty DeVito, folks. His new book is on sale right now. It's called Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Go out and get it. And I am Rick Z, and this is The Rick Z Show, produced and engineered every week by Rusty Johnson, and this week, additionally, co-produced by Dan D'Elia. Thanks, Dan. You're very welcome. Don't forget to come back and join us next week for part two of our interview with renowned drummer... Rick Z, your show sucks. Liberty DeVito. 